back in uh, February before uh, all this really transpired uh, was our fourth, me and Catherine's fourth wedding anniversary that we celebrated. And uh, February 13th, we celebrated, and I planned that day for that, uh, that night to go down to New York City to see a Broadway show, and we were going to get dinner, and I was going to get off of work early, and we were going to head down there and uh, just enjoy the night together and celebrate our anniversary. Well, I remember getting out of work early and meeting her out in the parking lot and got in the car, and we were getting ready to pull out and leave, and she said, hey, before we go, I just want to give you something, uh, give you our anniversary gift now, which I thought was a little strange. Usually, you know, we do that at, at dinner or something, but she said, I want to give it to you now before we go, so I said, all right. So she uh, gave me a little package, and I opened it up, and inside was a message that we were pregnant and we were expecting. And uh, it was obviously all the thoughts that go through your mind right away. You're excited and, um, you know, thanking the Lord and, you know, thinking, man, I'm going to be a parent and all the things that go with it and all the different emotions. But it was an exciting time. And obviously over the next couple weeks after that, the whole uh, COVID situation uh, happened and uh, getting into quarantine and starting to watch our country as it started to take that left turn, and we start to see everything going on in the news and everything going on in our country. And you step back, and I couldn't help but wonder, and I couldn't help but think with all the craziness that was going on in the world, man, what kind of world is our child going to grow up in? What kind of country is he going to grow up in? What kind of church is he going to grow up in? Where are things going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now? Our country, obviously, all of us know, and we read the new, or we watch the news, and we read different articles, and we see the, the hate, we see the division, we see uh, the anti-God message that is thrown in our face, and we see all these things that just run rampant. And immediately in my mind, I read Second Timothy chapter three, familiar passage. The Bible says, "This also know that in the last days, perilous times shall come." And then it describes perilous times. It says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Check. Covetous. Check. Boasters. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Check. Unthankful. Unholy. Check. Without natural affection. Truce breakers. False accusers. Incontinent. Fierce. Despisers of those that are good. Check. Trades. Traitors. Heady. High-minded. Lovers of uh, pleasures more than lovers of God. Check. And I read that and say, man, that's exactly what we're going through right now. The Bible says perilous times. You look around if we open our eyes and open our mind and we see what things are going on. There's no denying that that's what's going on. So I sit back and I say, Lord, what is the message you want me to preach this morning? I know as I pursue my calling for the Lord for my life and pastor, and I'll have many opportunities, Lord willing, down the road to preach at a consistent basis. But the times that I get now, Lord, what is the message you want me to preach this morning? What is the drum that you want me to beat this morning? And I struggled with that, and I, I still kind of struggle with that standing here this morning because I know there's many people here that are facing their own struggles in life, and they're facing their own fears in life, and they're facing their own health issues or family issues or things that are going on in their life. And I want more than ever to take time to open the Word of God and just assure you that, hey, God is still control. The Lord is still above all. The name of Jesus is above any disease, any division, any hate, any cancer, any family struggle, anything you're going through. He's above it all, and he's in control. 
But as I take the next couple minutes and say, oh, Lord, what is the main message you want me to get across? And I touched on a little bit last year when I preached, and I couldn't get away from it again this time, and that's this simple thought, our need for revival. We read Psalm 85, verse 6, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? If you study the history of revivals, and praise the Lord, we have a pastor whose time I was a teenager would take me around at different landmarks, and at the time I thought, okay, whatever, this is cool. But now as I start to appreciate it more, um, you realize the history of the revivals in our country, in this very part of New England and Northeast, in Litchfield County, Connecticut, in Washington, Connecticut, in Newark, New Jersey, in Freehold, New Jersey, in Newport, Rhode Island, and all throughout the Northeast and all throughout New England, how God worked in miraculous ways. And how the fire and the breath of God came down through churches and through Christians and revival was brought throughout this area. Countless numbers of towns, countless numbers of cities all throughout New England. And I step back and I constantly say when I study and I read and I pray, Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. God, bring revival to our city. Bring revival to our country. Bring revival to our church. I don't think any Christian here this morning would sit back and look at the news and look at the state of our country and say, deny the fact that we need God. Deny the fact that we need revival. That's the only answer to any of this. And I read verses like Isaiah 57, 15, and Ezekiel 37, and Psalm 85, and I say, God, do it again. I've said this before, my prayer since college has always been, God, give my generation one last chance to do something big for you. But as I study and as I pray and as I read, I realize it's oftentimes easier to get up and to talk to you about revival. It's easier to say, oh yeah, we need revival. It's easier for me to talk about it or to tweet about it or to post about it. But the question that God really worked on my heart when I studied this is, do I really want what comes with revival? If I really want to see God work, do I really want what comes with it? You see, revival can be uncomfortable. Revival can bring change. Revival can force us to be honest and evaluate our hearts and evaluate ourselves. The Bible says, search me, O God. Not just in church at an altar call, not just me preaching from a, from a pulpit, but are we really willing to allow God to search us? I've been reading a lot of Charles G. Finney, and he talks about what it takes to see the power of God. And he talks about why oftentimes we don't see revival or we don't experience the power of God in our lives. Let me share a few of his thoughts. He says we don't because we're uncharitable. We're self-dependent. We resist the conviction of sin. We refuse to confess to all parties concerned that we've wronged or have wronged us. We refuse to make restitution to injured parties. We are prejudiced and incandid. We're resentful. We have a revengeful spirit. We have a worldly ambition. We have committed ourselves at some point and we've become dishonest and we neglect and reject further light. We're selfish for just our own family, our own congregation. We resist the teachings of the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit by dissension. We quench the Holy Spirit by persistence in justifying wrong. We grieve him by a want of watchfulness. We resist him by indulging in evil tempers. We're dishonest in business. We're impatient upon waiting on the Lord. We have many forms of selfishness. We're negligent in business and study and in prayer. And by undertaking too much business and too much study, we spend too little time in prayer. And last and greatest, by unbelief. 
We pray, but we don't really believe it. We say, oh, Brother Zach just motivating us, pumping us up, talking about revival, and we'll walk out here, and it's the same as we don't really believe it. Can we give up our worldly indulgence? Can we give up our self-desire for fame and accolades, our revengeful spirit, our cold, apathetic, uh, content spirit of just living our days out? Or are we at a place where we can say, God, whatever it takes, I am willing. God, whatever it takes, search me. God, whatever it takes, show me what I have in my life that I need to give up. Show me any unconfessed sin. Show me any damaged relationships. Show me anything that is hindering me from allowing your spirit to come down and work and allow us to see revival. Are we at that point where we can say whatever it takes? Three statements this morning. I'll be quick and I'll be finished. If we're going to see God bring revival, we must pray like never before. We must pray like never before. If we are to pray right in such a time as this, much of our prayer should be for revival. Great works of God were birthed through prayer. You read about revivals and you read about how God worked and how they started through prayer. Public prayer, private prayer, not just a duty, not just something we sit in our chair and we bow our head and close our eyes and, and we pray what Pastor told us to pray about and our mind, our, our mind wanders off as he continues to prayer. No, a passionate prayer on our knees, privately and publicly, a hunger and a thirst to see God work, not a burden, but a necessity. I was reading about these revivals, and I was reading about one in particular just because it kind of touched home in Freehold in Newark, New Jersey in 1806, a revival through churches, and that's where I was born and where my family was from, and so I studied a little bit. And in 1806, that revival that took place there, there was a man by the name of Dr. Griffin, and he wrote a letter about what was taking place and about what was going on. It says, in New York, New Jersey, the spirit of revival descended on the churches in 1806. It was preceded by a spirit of prayer. Dr. Griffin writes to another doctor, Pastor Green, early in September, many private associations of prayer were formed. And I never witnessed the communication of so earnest a spirit of prayer and so general nor observe such evident and remarkable answers to prayer. The agonies of parents have been such as to drive sleep from their eyes, and for weeks together have been seemingly as great as their nature could well sustain. And these parents, in every case that has come within my knowledge, have each several children who are already numbered among the hopeful converts. What a testimony to the truth of God's promises, and what an encouragement of prayer. In this revival, between two and three hundred were converted to the small town of Newark. Birth through prayer. Listen, I'm not content to just say, you know what, this is what's going on in our country, and let's just throw our hands up, and let's just hope for the best, let's just ride the days out. I'm not content to say, well, you know what, my son's not going to grow up in the same country I grew up in, but let's just make the best out of it. I'm not content just to go to church for my own enjoyment and my own blessing. I'm not content just to sit there and do the same thing week after week after week. No, I want God to work and do something. And I know he can, but we as Christians have to believe it. We as Christians have to pray like never before. If our kids are going to see a future, if our country is going to see a future, if our church is going to see a future, we must beg God in prayer. Have we ever wrestled with God in prayer? Have we ever spent more than 20 or 30 minutes on our knees? Have we ever spent an hour on our knees wrestling with God? Saying, God, I'm not going to leave this place until I get a hold of you. 
God, I'm not going to leave this place until I believe that you heard my prayers for our country and for our church and for revival and for our family. I'm not going to leave until I know you've heard me and wrestled with God an hour. I'm embarrassed to say, I believe many of us would be embarrassed to say, we've never had that time in prayer. Say, well, we need revival, but are we willing to say whatever it takes? If we were going to see God bring revival, we must pray like never before. Number two this morning, we must become aware of the sinfulness, the pollution of our own hearts, and have complete dependence on God. Not dependent on politics. I'm guilty of this myself. Not dependent on a certain party or a certain candidate. Not dependent on ourselves, our own abilities. But searching my heart and realizing, man, I am so flesh and self-driven and I need God in every aspect of my life. If you have your Bible turned, I think it's worth showing you Isaiah 57. I love this verse. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Realizing a total dependence on God, realizing how selfish and flesh-driven and how carnal we really are and how much we really need God in our lives. If we're going to see revival, we must become aware of that. Isaiah 57, let me read you verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15, I'll read, you can follow along. The Bible says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. A humble spirit. Christian, we must submit our stubborn heart and will to the control of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. We must realize how selfish and how prideful and how arrogant we really are and say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Take responsibility for my own sins, for my own flesh. Humble myself in your presence and your sight. And God, I need you in my life. I need you more than ever. I can't do this on my own. I am totally, completely dependent on you. You don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there and read you James. One of my favorite books in the Bible talks about this in a uh, familiar passage in James chapter 4. Talks about relying on God, submitting to God. James 4, 7 through 10, submit yourselves Therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. If we're going to see revival, we must pray like never before, but we must realize how wicked and sinful and fleshful we really are, and we stand no shot unless we rely dependent on God, completely dependent on him. God, we need you. Not pointing fingers about what's wrong with that family or that person or that brother or that sister or that mom or that dad. No, pointing the finger at myself, evaluating my own heart and saying, God, I'm embarrassed. God, I'm willing to let go of these secret sins in my life. God, I'm willing to make right with the person who wronged me. I'm willing to forgive the person who wronged me. I'm willing to make right with the person I've wronged. I'm willing to get rid of the the spirit of revenge or the spirit of resentment or any grudges or any pride or any sin, any secret things that go on in my life. God, evaluate the inner chambers of my heart. May your Holy Spirit and your light penetrate my heart and penetrate my mind and penetrate my soul and search me, O God that I may know if there's any wicked ways in me. 
totally dependent on God. If we're going to see revival, we must pray like never before. We must become aware of the sinfulness and the pollution of our own hearts. But number three, we must renew our passion and our desire for souls. Only God can change a life. My sermons, my lectures, my opinions, my tweets, my posts, are not going to change any life. My agenda will change no man's heart. Jesus did not say, go ye into all the world and recruit people to vote a certain political party, and that will help our country. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. We need a love for souls like Jesus had. When God comes down, we forget about fame and self-promotion. When God sweeps through, we become burdened for the unsaved. When revival happens, Christians go to work for lost souls. It's not just going to church to be blessed and leave. They go to watch for souls to be brought to Christ. They talk to men on the street. They talk to men in the stores. They talk to men in their homes. The cross of Christ and salvation and heaven and hell become subjects of constant conversation. Politics and sports and weather are merely forgotten. The problem is we have no love for souls anymore. We don't care anymore. As long as me and mine are good, it's all all right. We see preachers who preach because they must and hope some are saved. We see Christians who don't act as Paul to beseech men everywhere to be reconciled to God. No care, no burden, no passion. I'm not trying to beat you up this morning, Christian. I'm trying to get you to understand if we stand any chance at coming out of this, if we stand any chance at our kids seeing the future, we need revival. We need God to sweep through. We need him to come down in the revival like he did in the revivals of old, like he did in Acts chapter 2. We need him to come down. But it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just, we don't wish it, it just happens. No, we must pray like never before. We must become dependent completely on God. And we must have a burden for souls. I told you I was reading a lot about uh, Charles G. Finney, born in Warren, Connecticut in 1792 and moved uh, young, when he was younger, to New York, near Lake Ontario. And he grew and he studied law for three years. And the funny thing is, he was actually introduced to the Bible by references in his law books as he studied law. They would refer to references, and so he got to know the Bible. 26 through 29, during his law studies, he was gradually brought face-to-face with religious truth and claims of God. He started to attend church and led the choir, and he was faithful to church, and he attended the occasional prayer meeting. And he writes that when he would go to the prayer meetings, he was stuck with the fact that many of the prayers were unanswered. But when he read the scriptures, the promises of God seemed to be so definite and so strong. So why were so many prayers unanswered? His mind was open to conviction of personal responsibility to his maker, a sense of sin and a need for a redeemer. And he found salvation and realized it was not by his works, but it was God's eternal gift. He said that the Holy Spirit asked him, will you accept my words and promise? And he wrote, I will accept today or I will die in the attempt. He started this journey of his Christian walk and he began to realize how proud he really was. He tells a story in his own words, which was so powerful and convicting that he was in the woods and he was kneeling and he was praying and he was talking to the Lord and he thought he heard somebody coming. And so quickly he stood up from his knees and he, and he looked around and the Holy Spirit convicted him right there while he stood and said, why are you worried if somebody sees you praying to me? And he realized, wow, how proudful I am. 
how full of pride I am, how full of self I am. And he got on his knees in that very spot, and he cried to the Lord, and he said, God, I don't care what man comes through these woods. I don't care what devil or angel comes in these woods. I will not leave this spot until I get a hold of you. He said as he laid there crying and praying, the Holy Spirit brought the verse to his heart, Seek me, and you shall find me when you shall search with me with all your heart. And he spent all night in prayer. And it's no wonder that God used him. It's no wonder that God used him to see great revivals and souls saved because he had a hunger for God like no one ever had before. And God used him in a great and mighty way. He wrote that he prayed knowing God will answer. And that this is bold to me, but his own words he wrote, God, will, uh, God made a promise and I won't be denied. I'll boldly uh, approach the throne of grace and say, God, I'm taking you at your promise unbelief was out of the equation. I believe you will answer this. I have the faith you will answer this. And it's no wonder God worked and answered many of his prayers and used him in many great revivals in this part of the country. And so my question as I sit here in 2020, at 28 years old, as a young preacher, and I look at the crowd and I look at the church and people I've known most my whole life, I can't stop but ask the question, can God do it again? Can God do it again? Are there any Christians who care? Are there any Christians who have a burden? Or are there any Christians who come to the point and say, God, whatever it takes, I don't care if it makes me uncomfortable. I don't care if it embarrasses me. I don't care if it hurts my ego or my pride. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to let God search my heart. I'm going to let God convict me of sin. I'm going to pray like I've never prayed before. And I'm going to have a burden for souls. So here's my question this morning. Here's my challenge. Would you do whatever it takes to see a revival? To see God work. I don't think it starts with us just walking out here this morning or praying at the altar. I think before we really pursue revival, we have to have a time where we just kind of meditate on that and say, God, can you search me? God, can you show me? What's in my life? What's in my heart that's keeping you from working? What relationships do I have to make right? Who do I have to forgive? What sin in my life that I sneak around and I know but no one knows about do I have to get rid of? What am I listening to? What am I watching? What am I saying? God, that cold heart, because I've just kind of backslidden, and God, can, my heart and heart, can you help me soften it? Can you help me get a hunger for you? I think it's a question that every Christian, young or old, needs to ask, God, search me. God, show me. And am I willing to do whatever it takes? Whatever it takes to see you work. I can preach about it. Pastor can emphasize it. We can pray about it on Wednesday night. But it comes down to you and it comes down to me personally searching our own hearts and saying, God, I take responsibility. God, I want to do my part. Work in me. Show me. Do something. Move. And I promise you, it doesn't matter what man sits in the White House next year. The Holy Spirit of God comes down on the church. The Holy Spirit of God comes down in Danbury, Connecticut. The Holy Spirit of God comes down throughout New England and the Northeast. There's no stopping it. There's no stopping the power of God. There's no stopping seeing souls saved, seeing prodigals return, seeing churches planted in every town in Fairfield County, seeing buses run, seeing souls saved, seeing full church services, seeing prayer meetings where we cry out to God and we get hold of God. And when we leave and we walk out those doors, we know that God met with us. But are we willing to do whatever it takes? Are we willing to say, God, search me. Search me and show me. 
If you're here this morning or you're watching by way of live streaming, you don't even know you're saved. You don't even know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. You've never accepted his gift. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus loves you. Can I tell you this morning, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and to pay your penalty for sin. He loves you that much. I read something this week that said, God loves you in a single moment more than anybody in a lifetime will ever love you. The love of God is great and overwhelming, and he loves you, and he's calling you, and he wants to save you. But you have to accept his eternal gift of salvation. Stop procrastinating. Stop putting it behind you. Today's the day to say, God, I need you, and I accept your gift. That's you this morning, whether you're here with us in the service or whether you're watching through live stream. I plead with you, don't let the day end before you make that decision. And Christian, if you're watching or if you're here, it's a simple challenge. Psalm 85 says, revive us again, O God. Can we see God do it? I know we can, but we have to have a spirit of whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Search me, God. Search me, God. Show me. Take time this week to meditate on that. Take time this week to pray on that. Allow God to show you and enlighten you and open things in your mind and heart so that he can come down and work in a way that he hasn't in this area for years. Every head bowed, every eye closed.